You're listening to Sex Gets Real with Dawn Sarah. That's me. This is a place where we explore sex, bodies, and relationships from a place of curiosity and inclusion, tying the personal to the cultural, where you're just as likely to hear tender questions about shame and the complexities of love as you are to hear experts challenging the dominant stories around pleasure, body politics, and liberation. This is about the big and the small, about sex and everything surrounding it we don't usually name. The funny, the awkward, the imperfect happen here in service to joy, connection, healing, and creating healthier relationships with ourselves and each other. So welcome to Sex Gets Real. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hey you, here we are with part two of our three-part series surrounding Franklin Vaux, Eve Rickert, emotional abuse, and alternative justice practices. Last week, we started with a conversation with Eve Rickert, co-author of the More Than Two polyamory book, about her experiences being in a relationship that involved emotional abuse and gaslighting and what unfolded as she came to grips with that realization. We also talked about what's happened since and engaging in a survivor slash community accountability slash transformative justice process. And this week to build on that conversation, I am chatting with therapist and kink expert, Samantha Manowitz who joins us to talk all about emotional abuse, which is something that can be really difficult to um, identify and put our finger on, especially when we're experiencing it. So we'll talk a lot about that and gaslighting. And one of the things that I just think is so important about this conversation and why I can't wait for you to hear it is because we are inside of a culture that is culturally gaslighting us all of the time. And we have uh, a president of the United States who has normalized gaslighting. And even inside of our friendships and our most intimate relationships, it can be so easy to gaslight and be gaslit. We're going to explore that with Samantha this week. Just a quick note, I recorded this episode while sitting in my childhood bedroom with with a pair of earbuds and my laptop because I was home for a family funeral. So this episode does sound just a little bit different from the other episodes, but I had to work with what I had because I really wanted to have this conversation with Samantha. Before we dive in, though, I wanted to let you know that the July cohort of my Power in Pleasure online course is now enrolling. And I wanted to share a couple of things that people from the current cohort have been saying over the past couple of days about the course. So this first one was someone emailing me and it says, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for the spaces you're creating and the conversations you are facilitating. Between the summit and the course, I'm feeling all kinds of connection to you and to the communities of people you are bringing together. I feel really strongly connected to a lot of the things you say in the group chats and so much of the course content so far is feeling like just exactly what I need. I am so grateful for the opportunity to participate in the amazing conversations that are taking place within these spaces. Enlightening and empowering. I'm feeling so much validation and solidarity here. Another person said, I want to briefly briefly express how much your love, compassion, and insight has allowed me to give myself permission to feel pleasure and to take responsibility for stepping away from dis-ease. And another person who has been unpacking some of the stories they carry around sex wrote, your words were incredibly freeing, Dawn. I love having satisfaction as the goal. It really feels clear and lighter. It feels real and really, really hits the mark for me. Each day, I am blown away by your depth and wisdom. Thank you. 
I have been moved at the depth of the conversations and inquiry that we've been doing in this course. The things that are slowly being revealed is so powerful. And we just wrapped up week three of the five-week course where we spent a whole week exploring our hungers and our desires, what it means to be satisfiable and to center enoughness. We also explored our hunger around not only food, but also sex, connection, touch, belonging. It was really rich. And last week, we spent the entire week connecting with our senses to practice small ways of being embodied and hearing our body and being sensual. If you would like to explore pleasure on your terms, if you'd like to release old stories about being worthy and deserving and who gets to feel good, or if pleasure feels really complicated for you, then you can go to dawnsarah.com slash pleasure course and check out all of the details because the next group is enrolling now and we start July 22nd, 2019. And I would love to see you there. Back to my conversation with Samantha, I just want to issue a reminder that this three-part series is not about painting any one person as a monster or any other person as some perfect survivor. Instead, we're really hoping to reveal things like power dynamics, celebrity culture, the ways that we are all so easily complicit in harmful behaviors, while also exploring different ways that we can engage in community accountability and alternative justice practices that can really shift how we show up for each other and how we do community. I also just want to note, there has been so much labor on the part of the survivor pod to gather stories, to support the survivors, to engage in dialogue with the community, to track everything that's unfolding, to craft really thoughtful and important messages and updates about the process they're engaging in. And I was wrong last week when I said that expenses have been been estimated at 10,000. They're over 20,000 at this point because of all of the people and the time. So in each of these three episodes, you're going to hear people mentioning how much they would really love your financial support. Even a dollar helps. So in the show notes for this episode, and if you go to sexgetsreal.com slash EP262, you'll find the link to the Survivor Pod's PayPal. If community accountability and alternative justice are really important to you, like they are for me, then this is a chance to actually really help by donating a couple of dollars or even $1 to the survivor pod to ensure that this crucial work continues happening and that we can have many more of these processes down the road. I also want to just note Patreon supporters, you get an exclusive little behind the scenes clip of what unfolded after Samantha and I finished our main conversation for the show. Plus, I've made a little handout with some of the questions that Samantha offered that can help us spot some behaviors that might be problematic. And if you go to patreon.com slash SGR podcast, you can get your goodies if you already support the show at $3 a month and above. Or if you aren't a supporter yet, join us at $3 a month and above. You get weekly bonus content. So that's less than a dollar per week uh, to get PDFs and guided meditations and extra bonus chats with interviewers and all kinds of other stuff. And if you support it $5 a month and above, you can help me field listener questions. Again, that's at patreon.com slash SGR podcast. Next week, part three of our three-part series is going to drop, and it's my incredible conversation with Ida Mandule about accountability and transformative justice. Tune into that. So let me tell you a little bit about Samantha, and then we will dive in. Samantha Manowitz is an educator and ASECT certified sex therapist. She has trained mental health professionals, sex educators, and alt-sex communities on healthy communication, abuse prevention, and mental health in BDSM. 
Samantha was a featured presenter at multiple conferences, including Catalyst Con, West, American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, also known as ASECT, the Community Academic Consortium for Research on Alternative Sexualities, and the Woodhull Sexual Freedom Summit, one of my personal favorites. Among her therapeutic specialties are trauma, complex PTSD, sex therapy, couples therapy, she's level two Gottman trained, and gender affirming care for transgender and non-binary clients. Samantha is also the faculty of the Institute for Sexuality Education and Enlightenment, where she has presented on sexual coercion and psychotherapy with kinky clients. So here is my chat with Samantha. Welcome to Sex Gets Real, Samantha. I am very much looking forward to our rich discussion today. Thank you. And likewise, thank you for uh, inviting me on. Yes. So we're going to be talking about <laughs> gaslighting and emotional abuse today, which for listeners might sound kind of heavy, but I promise is going to be super fascinating and something that impacts all of us. And Samantha, you do a lot of work around emotional abuse and manipulation and gaslighting. And so I'd love to just kind of start with a little bit about how you became experienced in this space and, and how you got started in this work. Sure. I mean, my entire story of how I got to where I am is kind of wibbly wobbly. <laughs> um, it wasn't really a straight path. Uh, but I guess just starting with my clinical career, I uh, got my social work degree from University of Chicago in 2011. Before that, I was a Russian major. I got my degree 10 years too early and 10 years too late, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, part of why I decided to go into therapy or something that, that informed my decision was I, I identify as poly and kinky myself. I had had some bad experiences with therapists and was like, that sucks. I don't want other people to experience this. So that very much informed what I wanted to do with my career when I ultimately decided to go into social work. I kind of right out of the gate, I was working with high trauma populations. Uh, my first field placement was at an LGBT health center. Uh, in, in Chicago, where we worked with uh, LGBTQ, et cetera, clients from all walks of life, but they also had a separate uh, domestic violence program where LGBT survivors, or just an anti-violence program, where LGBTQ survivors of uh, relationship abuse, sexual trauma, and hate crimes could receive free counseling. So that was kind of my very first foray into abuse work and where I learned the nuts and bolts of abuse and domestic violence response. I was, second year field placement was at a rape crisis center. And then my first job out of graduate school, I joke that I was hired to work with teens because I'm quote unquote young and relatable and ended up with a bunch of traumatized age 12 year olds. Mm. So um, PTSD and trauma work are, were things that I kind of fell into the deep end of when I started doing, uh, you know, training to be a clinician and a provider. And so it is something that has stuck with me. Also, working with queer, poly, kinky, rainbow alphabet soup clients, these are experiences and identities that have a lot of varying degrees of trauma associated with them. So it was uh, really important for me to really learn and know my stuff. Mm. So this episode is part of a multi-part series that we're doing, mm -hmm. talking about um, alternative justice mm -hmm. and emotional abuse and gaslighting, and then uh, Eve's experience, Eve Rickard's experiences um with franklin bow and eve had reached out to me because she was looking for a way that we could start having some bigger conversations mm -hmm. about the ways that power and privilege impact so many of the communities that so many of us are in the ways that abuse is really normalized in our culture yes and so i'd love to start we hear lots of people talking and writing about gaslighting these days yes and i think that some people kind of have an idea of what it is, but it's a little bit elusive by nature. 
And I'd love to hear how you define gaslighting. The way I define gaslighting is a pattern of repeated behavior and psychological techniques that are designed to undermine a target's ability to gauge their own sense of self, trust their own brain, and feel safe in their ability to gauge reality. I think I had said this in a previous podcast, but have you ever been in a place where like you lost your keys or your wallet and you had that moment of it's it's right there. It was right there. I swear I left it right there and it's gone. It's not me. Mm-hmm. I can't be the only one who's had this experience. Yes. <laughs> so gaslighting would be if somebody saw my wallet and took it from me and I'm like, where the heck was it? And the person who took my wallet would be like, well, you do have some severe executive dysfunction. Are you sure you left it on the table? Mm. And so it takes that space of fog and, uh, you know, just that, that unsure and, and, wobbly feeling and kind of expands that space and keeps you in it. Mm -hmm. So when someone is being gaslit, imagine having that, oh shit, I lost my keys. I swear they were right there feeling 24 seven. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard because you can't put your finger on it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because again, one of the things that we're taught to do when we're gaslit is, is the message that we get and the message we're received is that it is something wrong with us and we just need to fix this thing. Mm-hmm. And sadly, one of the rules of thumb about abuse, especially emotional abuse and gaslighting is if you think it can't happen here and you think it can't happen to you, think again. Yeah. no matter where here is or who you are. And right now, going to get political. We cannot talk about gaslighting right now without talking about politics because right now it is in the air we breathe. Yes, it is. And basically every time, I'm going to name this because it would, a lot of people will say, well, how do you know? And how dare you say these bad things about this other party? that in and of itself is a gaslight that we then internalize and repeat. Mm -hmm. So Kellyanne Conway, alternative facts, that is gaslighting. When Donald Trump says the things that you see and hear aren't happening, the distrusting of news sources, you know, that's what Scientology does. That's also Mm -hmm. a form of gaslighting. Every time Sarah Huckabee Sanders opens her mouth, she gaslights. So like, Right now, it's so ubiquitous that we're getting fed gaslights all the time, and some of them may not even go, and they're happening so quickly and so hard and fast that we may not even realize they're happening to us when they're happening. Yeah. Like, I don't know about you, but right now, I can't turn on the news because whenever I watch any type of opinion piece, even though I can see the mechanisms and I can see what's going on, I still leave those conversations feeling foggy. Yeah. And that's by design. Yes. Yeah. And I think what's so important too in naming this is there are so many things baked into Mm. every level level of our culture that help to create this doubting of self, right? Like even as mm-hmm. kids, there are so many of us who had parents that would say, you don't really have to pee. You're not it's really- not so bad. You'll be fine. Stop right. complaining. Right. And then like the ways our education system, like in colonized North America, yeah. our education system teaches us that people outside of ourselves have the truth. Mm-hmm. And that we should turn to them for answers, which teaches us to deny yes. and ignore our emotions and our sensations. We're kind of all in a place that makes it very easy to manipulate and be manipulated because it's cultural. Absolutely. It is right now baked into our culture. There are a lot of cultural norms right now that tend to lean very authoritarian. Mm-hmm. 
and kind of promote these silencing tactics without us even realizing that's what's happening. Uh, one that I'm seeing right now, and again, I know we're getting political, but those are, it's kind of the low hanging fruit of gaslighting, to mm -hmm. be honest. Uh, but a, a, a trope that I am seeing left, right, and sideways, especially talking with more vocal and, and uh, progressive candidates from folks on our, you know, on quote unquote my team mm -hmm. in bunny rabbit ears, um, you know, saying things like this is how you're going to get Trump reelected. Yeah. Right? Don't make waves. People don't realize just how harmful that is. Yeah. Um, and and how that mindset is actively dangerous and it can prevent people who are in genuine distress to stay silent. Mm -hmm. Yes, so when we're talking about gaslighting and emotional abuse, what we're really talking about is the, the attempt to remove power from someone and also an attempt to silence someone yes and so of course we see lots of lots of things happening right now that are attempting to silence certain people by telling them mm -hmm. they're too much they're too loud that's not the right way yes the the double-edged sword of respectability politics kind of thing and sometimes we can repeat yeah. gas sites yes. without even realizing we're doing it um, I initially called it the jackdaw effect, and then a friend of mine um, was like, you should call it the Mockingjay effect, like from Hunger Games. So, like, have you ever seen the Hunger Games? Oh, or yeah. do you know what I'm talking about? Like that Mockingjay, one, you know, one Mockingjay makes a call, and then it sort of reverberates throughout the forest. Mm -hmm. That can happen with gaslights, too. So we can sometimes be Mockingjays for gaslighting tropes and not even realizing that what we're perpetuating is a gaslight. Yeah, yeah. So that's fun. <laughs> it is, and I think part of what, what feels so slippery about it is that mm -hmm. often you, it's just so hard to see because of that fog you mentioned. Exactly. You know, kind of this sense of, well, I guess that makes sense. Like we can rationalize things. And, and I think another really common phrase is like, well, it's not that bad. They're yes. not X, Y, Zing me. It could be worse. Mm -hmm. That kind of downplaying of our experience is a way of silencing ourselves because of what's around us. Yes, our ability to downplay and minimize as a survival tactic is incredibly strong. Yeah. Um, I once worked with a woman who escaped a severely abusive family and an abusive marriage, had an immunodeficiency thing and a botched gastric bypass surgery and a special needs child. And when I suggested maybe possibly going to a support group for help, she was like, yeah, but I am afraid I'll be taking up too much space because, you know, people have it so much worse than I do. And I just, you know, and, and so be, very few of us actually want to be the victim, although there are ways that that identity can definitely be weaponized. Yeah. Um, but for most of us, it's amazing the mental gymnastics that we will do to kind of protect our own sense of self and reality. It's, uh, it's called the backfire effect. The oatmeal has a fantastic webcomic on it, um, mm. by the by. Okay. Basically how, if there is a core belief we have um, that is directly tied to some aspect of our identity, the more facts we are given about that thing, uh, the more strongly or devoutly we adhere to that core belief. Yes. So an example of that, um, are you familiar with the Theranos debacle and the um, documentary on HBO? I'm not. Um, I, it's based on uh, reporting by this guy, John Carreyrou, uh, who is a Wall Street Journal reporter. So Theranos was this uh, biotech startup in Silicon Valley run by this woman, Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, there's also a really great podcast called The Inventor. Mm -hmm. No, The Dropout. Uh, the documentary is called The Inventor. Um, 
and the whole thing was a scam and the technology didn't work but she was selling it to walgreens she had like uh henry kissinger on her board of directors and charles schultz who is credited with ending the cold war Mm. in the united states and his grandson tyler schultz was a uh a major whistleblower for theranos Mm. and when uh Tyler Schultz's grandfather found out Tyler was like grandpa this is a scam it doesn't work the the more his grandson tried to protest the more deeply he stuck to his resolve yeah that Theranos was changing the world yes because we need to keep that identity yeah yeah. And it wasn't until she was like, you know, convicted by, I think, the centers for like Medicaid and Medicare that, you know, he realized just how brave his grandson was in mm. blowing that whistle. Yes. But like, yeah. it's that strong where like, it can, it can rip families apart. Yeah. So inside of our intimate relationships, what are some of the things that maybe would be clues that we're being gaslit or mm-hmm. manipulated? Well, there are these, it, it is a very much a death by a thousand paper cuts. So it tends to start very, very small. So there are these little small negations that people will do where I'll say, you know, so it's kind of like, are you really going to eat that? Do you really feel this? So there, there are kind of these little micro testing of, well, are you sure? And an inability to accept influence. Uh, there is a fantastic podcast called the Indoctrination Podcast uh, by this woman, Rachel Bernstein. She's an excellent resource on cults and systems of control. And at the end of each of her podcasts, she'll have a thing called Before You Go, which is basically like a sort of pro tip for her audience. And one of the things that she'll say is with people who are enthusiastic, who are narcissistic, who are cult leaders, who engage in these behaviors, um, their goal is to get control over you and they will be the most wonderful partners or mentors ever for as long as you're on their team. Mm. But the second that you require time or effort, that adoration and that love bombing can get really quickly switched off. So one of her recommendations is to say no early and often and see what happens. Ooh, I like yeah, that. I know. She's, she's real smart. Y'all should listen to her podcast, add it to your favorites. She's great. Yeah. Um, so what happens when this person hears no which also uh ties into a concept that i learned when i was getting trained in gottman method couples work i'm level two trained it goes up to level four in certification uh which i don't have money to do at this point (laughs) but that's another story um one of the the skills that gottman teaches and and other you know other couples modalities teach as well is that when it comes to negotiation with an intimate partner or a family member or anyone, one of the things we forget is you have to accept influence to have influence. Yep. One of the things that I recommend someone do, because it's the most liberating thing ever, is to try to admit that you're wrong on Facebook. <laughs> no one ever does it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, so I, I went to, to Bryn Mawr as an undergrad. I'm kind of bopping all over the place. So hopefully you can turn this into a coherent coherent (laughs) narrative. Um, And there was an issue over uh, one of our libraries that was named after a big founder who like sadly many women of her time were big into eugenics. And I made some sort of comment. There was a back and forth in a debate. And one of the commenters said, you know, that sounds really condescending. And I realized that I had screwed up. And that I was, you know, and so my response was, it wasn't my intention to come across as as condescending. I can totally see how it came across that way. I'm going to stop now before my foot goes any further into my mouth. And by admitting my mistake, I completely changed the tenor of that conversation. 
Yeah. And all of a sudden people, you know, it went from a really tense conversation to a conversation where we were actually hearing each other and, and we forget the importance of accepting influence. That said, uh, the Gottmans also talk about two different types of needs, like inner circle needs, which are like your core needs and then your outer needs. So your core needs are kind of like the uh, load bearing walls of your soul. Mm -hmm. You know, if you compromise on these things, bad stuff happens. But there's also an outer ring of needs that are important, but they're areas of flexibility. So in a non-monogamous situation, let's say I am having an issue with my partner where I don't feel like we are spending enough time or I'm feeling taken for granted. Um, if I communicate to this partner, my core need is I would like to spend more time with you and I would like to have that time prioritized. Mm -hmm. What I can be flexible about is what that looks like or how it manifests, right? Yeah. Do we schedule a date night? What are ways that we can help work out our schedules to make sure that this time happens? That kind of thing. So, so according to the Gottmans, you want to strike this balance between um, having your inner circle as small as possible without being artificially small and the uh, flexible needs as large as possible without being artificially big. Mm. Because if you're like needs, what needs? I don't have needs. Your face has needs. Um, next thing you know, instead of your house of identity, you have a pile of rubble because things got knocked down. You didn't realize were core. Yeah. And when you are too rigid and unable to accept influence, every time your partner has a need, it comes across as an attack. And that's just not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. So does that answer that question? It does. And I just really love the simplicity of say no early and often. Yeah. I think that it's so hard for so many of us, especially those of us who have been socialized as female to say no. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the things that no reveals mm. about how much our needs are being considered and how much our autonomy is being respected is mm. huge. One of the cultural things that I've seen both in my personal life and in my practice is, is I think the way that we socialize cishet men in our culture mm -hmm. does not help. Nope. I, I think that we prioritize individuality and the kind of narrative of specialness yeah. and expertise while also devaluing all of the steps you have to take to become an expert. Yes. So people will kind of assume that they are great at X, Y, and Z because they're really talented at Y unrelated topic over here. Mm -hmm. Can, and when you're like, well, actually, friend, that's not true, or here's what you missed, that goes back to that backfire effect, where if your identity is centered on being a go-to expert about all things at all times, you're going to take it more personally than it was probably intended. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of going back to gaslighting, one of the ways that it's classified is as a form of narcissistic abuse. Mm. And even though that might be technically true, I find that very problematic because if you just say, well, this is narcissistic abuse and someone says, I'm feeling gaslit or I'm feeling unheard, it's like, well, are you saying I'm a narcissist then? Yeah. And no, not necessarily. It could be that there are gaslighting tropes that you are inadvertently replicating. Right. Which also makes that very hard because sometimes it can be hard to tell what is legitimately patterned or what the Gottmans would call characterological abuse mm -hmm. versus what the Gottmans would call situational abuse. Yeah. But the way you treat those two things are, in any community are very different. And I think it's important to name there that um, it, within pop culture, mm -hmm. gaslighting has been romanticized. Yes. 
you know, we see it as romantic when typically men or boys convince girls that they know better than Mm -hmm. themselves. Yes. And that there's something romantic and continuing to pursue and persuade and to push and look how dedicated Mm -hmm. they are to you. They don't give up. And that sets us up for Mm -hmm. these patterns of abuse then down the road, because now we've seen this attention as something really romantic rather than something really potentially harmful and problematic. Yes. And then that just sets us up for all kinds of like messy, foggy bullshit down the road. Exactly. Yeah. So thinking about alternative justice, thinking about this process and the processes that have come before us, um, we are well aware that the things that we're asking of ourselves and our communities is really freaking hard because we're asking people to examine and unwire concepts that may be very, very core to people's identity. And that's never easy and never comfortable. And I'm able to have empathy for it. But having empathy is not the same as a get out of jail free card. You still need to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. So something else that is very common, specifically around gaslighting, manipulation, and emotional abuse, and that also makes it really, really confusing for people who aren't experts and even confusing for experts, is that often abusers not only position themselves as victim, but truly believe themselves to be the victim. Yes, otherwise known as DARVA, which stands for Deny, Attack, Reverse Victim, and Offender. And I, it's uh, Jennifer Freyd, R-F-E-Y-D, I believe is the person who coined the phrase. Um, if you Google what is Darvo, her research comes up. Now, what's interesting, is, I'm not sure if this can be aired, so I will say it and then I will leave it to your discretion as to whether this is appropriate. Okay. So um, I actually... Uh, my episode on the Unpopular Culture podcast garnered them their very first one-star review <laughs> because somebody uh, was like, how dare she say all of these bad things about Brett Kavanaugh? This is called slander. Yada, 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 yada. And the host's response was, well, this is why we don't talk about politics. Mm. We need to approach this in a way that doesn't alienate or offend anybody. And I was like, buddy, Yikes. you just offended me. Yeah. Um, we had also talked about uh, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps Score, right. which is this kind of relates to the issue with Franklin because Bessel van der Kolk wrote one of the foundational texts of trauma and trauma recovery. Yep. His research is foundational and fundamental to this field. And he was fired from the center he founded in Brookline, not Watertown. I messed that up in that podcast uh, for promoting a toxic work environment. And his co-author CEO was fired for being severely abusive to his female employees. Yeah. The response that Bessel van der Kolk released was full of gaslighting and Darvo. Mm-hmm. One of his comments was, well, why didn't these subordinates come to me and ask me? And oh. I'm like, dude, you <laughs> literally wrote the book on this yeah. and published a paper on all of the reasons why survivors can't come forward. And that's the line you're taking? Yeah. Really, dude? Um, and so when I posted, hey, for those of you who listened to the episode, here's this Boston Globe article on Van Vanderkolk. And the, the podcast host went right down to, well, I need to see the investigation, innocent until proven guilty, due process, blah, blah, mm. blah, blah, blah. And I was like, if no. any survivors are reading this, I don't know what to do. Yeah. And I'm like, did you not? And, and, and I had explained in that podcast, like all of the reasons why I did what I had done. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know if that's an appropriate tangent to put in this, but I, I, um, 
Well, I think it like it highlights some really important things. Yeah. So, you know, it highlights power mm-hmm. and and whether it's real power or perceived power, mm-hmm. the ways that survivors survive yeah. is often by playing along, being nice, appeasing. That's mm-hmm. a very wise survival response mm-hmm. that then often gets um, weaponized and helps the Darvo effect, right? Well, they didn't say anything, so clearly I'm the one that's mm-hmm. actually the victim. And I think it also really points out the discomfort that comes up even for professionals yeah. when some of our core stories or the people we look up to, whether that's a Brett Kavanaugh or it's a Bessel van der Kolk mm-hmm. or it's a Bill Cosby or it's an R. Kelly, it brings up those feelings of this can't be true. And so now I'm going to deflect and minimize. Yeah. And I don't want to like cast aspersions on this podcast. It is a great podcast. And he knows his shit on other things. Mm -hmm. But this was just very disappointing. Yeah. And another thing that I realized, because I I think that that conversation was a situational example. Yeah. And one of the things that I was realizing as I was having that, that interaction is one of the reasons why transformative justice to me is so important is that a lot of us, the only frame of reference we have for justice is our legal system. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but our legal system is not really well equipped to (laughs) serve justice for large swaths of the population. Yeah. And the bar of due process gets misapplied all the time, especially when we are in heavy backfire effect mode, especially when our ontological security is being challenged. Because yeah. here is somebody who identifies as intelligent, as open-minded, as an ally, and as impartial. And here I am being like, nobody. There mm-hmm. is no impartiality. There is no neutrality. Yeah. Of, of course he's going to disagree. And part of what I feel like transformative justice does and alternative justice does is it it kind of expands our vocabulary and it gives a far more nuanced way of approaching harm Mm -hmm. because one of the fears that came across very much is the, well, this is going to turn into a witch hunt. This is a McCarthy era type thing. And I hear this from my mom. I hear this all of the time, but the, the thing that, I don't see happening is a commitment to change by the people who create commit these transgressions. Yes. Because if all you know is a punitive model and the only justice we talk about is cancel culture, Mm -hmm. of course you're going to get defensive. Yeah. Of course you're not going to want to speak out. Why the hell would you put yourself in that position? Right. So it's incredibly counterintuitive because the thing that is most effective is the thing that is the least viscerally gratifying in the moment. Yes. And when we talk about finding place for empathy for people who have caused harm, that doesn't mean we let them off the hook. Yep. It also does not mean that the people that they have harmed have to have empathy for them. Mm-hmm. If you want a person who severely abused you to die in a fire, that's valid. Yeah. Like that anger, those feelings, it might not be anger. That's an assumption, right? You are allowed to feel however you want about your experience and the people who have harmed you. Mm-hmm. However, if we are going to invest in the overall safety and security of ourselves and our communities we cannot have cancel culture as as our only recourse we just we can't right yeah because again this is super counterintuitive the more firm we are in cancel culture the more abuses are going to get swept under the rug yes 
um, which we have been seeing for so long already in so many kink communities and polyamory communities and queer communities because we're terrified of saying something bad happened because we're already marginalized. Yeah. And then the silence just gets perpetuated. And also, we tend to have very complicated relationships with the people who've caused us harm. Yeah. It is very, very rare, actually, to see somebody who has um, kind of unambiguously bad feelings about someone who's caused them harm. Yeah. And when we say, well, why were you still so nice to this person after they did all of these horrible things, asks X, Y, and Z, we are effectively invalidating and re-victimizing. Yeah. And if our only recourse is that like punitive justice and somebody I deeply respect or love or care about did something terrible to me and I don't want them to go to jail, what recourse do I have? Yeah. That's, you know, and it's, it's that space that we're trying to cultivate so that if somebody was harmed, but you don't necessarily want revenge on your assailant or you want to be able to heal and have your story told, there are other options. There are, and, and if you have caused harm, you can come forward and work on it and get better and change your behavior mm -hmm. without it being this mark of cane that follows you for the rest of your life. Yeah. And again, this is only when, you know, we're talking about situational violence. Yeah. But transfer, you know, transformative justice is also designed to kind of help us differentiate between, all right, what is situational? What is this person is effectively like a Great Dane that thinks it's a puppy? Mm -hmm. Right. And what is, you know, more calculated and methodical and by giving somebody an opportunity to work on their stuff if they don't or lash out this gives us data yeah and then it becomes about you know if we can't necessarily change this person's behavior what do we do to make sure that they don't have access to platforms where they have an opportunity to cause harm Yes. So I'd love to talk about this just a little bit. So the reason that we're having this conversation beyond your work is super important is also yeah. because of my conversation with Eve and yes. the survivor pod that's been formed, the alternative justice conversation I'll be having with Ida Mandule. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'll be sharing with listeners is access to a lot of the posts that have been coming out that are mm -hmm. going to help us to just see some things that might be hard to see. Yes. And so um, some of the things that have been gathered and that are starting to come to light are some patterns of behavior that are chronic and abusive. Yes. And can you talk a little bit about some of the patterns you've noticed? Because it's not just this one particular relationship. We know that no. this is rather common. Uh, and so I'd love to just kind of highlight it a little bit. Well, there were a couple of things that, you know, there are a couple little blink and you miss it things that if you don't know what to look for, seem super inconsequential. Some of the things that raised my red flags and that sort of cemented my decision to do this work were some of the ways that Franklin was publicly responding to accusations mm. um, that I have been abused became kind of an identity shield and for me that's a red flag um, I don't know if you ever watched I, I think I talked about this in the unpopular culture podcast again please do listen to it it really is a good podcast and it really is a good person I just this is a blind spot I do not mean to disparage anyone cannot stress that enough <laughs> really um, one of the things I talked about in the podcast is uh, I'm, I'm a huge uh, old school Buffy and Angel fan. And there is an early Buff, uh, Angel episode where one of the partners at this demonic um, law firm had his hand cut off and he got a hand of a serial killer. And then the hand like 
went around and like forced him to do things he didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And at the very end of the episode, he gets the hand is neutralized, but his firm doesn't know that. And the way that he quits is like, so you see, I, I have these these evil hand issues. I don't I don't know when it's gonna act up. I'm super, you know, and so whenever anyone raised an objection, he's like, nope, evil hand. Yeah, but <laughs> evil hand, evil, evil hand. So whenever I see people using their stories of trauma in an evil hand capacity of I am above reproach because victim evil hand. Mm. That is a red flag. Um, Also the way that he responded to our initial uh, message to him, that Colin letter we sent Mm -hmm. um, the, the, he posted on Cora, like what made you angry today? And the way that, Franklin in that post categorized us was very interesting to me. Um, one person was, oh, like former hairdresser, not mentioning that this is a person with a social work degree and activism and transformative justice. I was characterized as somebody he and Eve had met at a convention one time. And I was like, okay, yes, that's like saying, talking about the Phantom of the Opera and saying that it's just like a guy who wears a black cape, like technically true, not the relevant piece of data there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also in a post on Facebook that I think that has since been deleted when he put the pod together, uh, somebody else had pointed this out to me and I was like, oh crap, you're right. Um, He said like, I agree to be held accountable to my standards. I'm like, well, that's, that's an interesting little turn of phrase. (laughs) <laughs> so to us that those felt like really blatant mischaracterizations of us and the work and in terms of what that indicates with his uh, ability or desire to actually be held accountable for these behaviors yeah uh, doesn't bode well yeah. I don't want to make any guaranteed or any any firm suggestions but like you know those are the types of things that we need his people and the people who care about him, you know, to name and hold his feet to the fire on. Yeah. So, yeah. But again, this isn't about Franklin. Yeah. And this isn't about just this one thing. Like our goal for that part of the work is to prevent future harm and to give templates for other people to, you know, to work from if they feel like they have harmed or they have experienced harm. Yeah. And I think that's something that's so important about not only this particular instance of alternative justice, but several others that I'm seeing unfold is we're trying to remember that this isn't about vilifying a victim. No, we're trying to help mitigate harm, help create space for healing and also help Mm -hmm. to just give people language, tools, experiences for things that can be really difficult to name, to, you know, put our finger on, and then to know how to move forward in a way that doesn't cause further harm. Exactly. Because none of the survivors, at least not to my knowledge, I think we had started with six women. The last I heard were up to 12. Mm. So... Um, also, so Louisa Leontinitis is the one who's responsible for kind of collecting and collating the stories that we have received. And uh, there's some of that information that not even the other pod members have access to because we're a survivor-centered process. And she only releases that information with the survivor's consent on a need-to-know basis, yeah. which, of course people who are looking at this process from afar because of internet culture and how that works everyone wants receipts like you we want documented proof up the wazoo even though again if you're deep in backfire effect all of the data in the world will not convince you if part of your identity is based around franklin being a a good person Mm -hmm. or a kind person or a guru right right that's a that's a hard thing to wrap your head around so Yeah. Something that you mentioned um, in your other podcast interview that Mm -hmm. I do hope people will hear 
is, and I think that this is super important for us to just all hold really tenderly, as you said, bones heal faster than psyches. Yup. And I think it's so important for us to just really hold how, while all abuse is unacceptable and terrible mm. and causes harm, but, you know, as someone who is a survivor, I can say for myself that there is something really important about having physical evidence that can be seen and tangible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so like when we're talking about gaslighting and manipulation, coercion, uh, emotional abuse, part of the reason why it feels so slippery is because we don't have something to see and to hold. Mm -hmm. And so it feels like it's not quite real. Yeah, which is also why, quite frankly, our criminal justice system is not equipped to handle allegations of an emotional abuse. Because yeah. how do you prove something like that, especially when the perpetrators of it, or many of the perpetrators, deliberately violate in such a way that they know there will be no evidence and it will be, an, uh, you know, my word against theirs. Yeah. It is also why in cases like this, when you do say things like, well, I need to see the investigation, well, innocence until proven guilty, in cases like that, the benefit of the doubt always leans towards power. Right. And so the way that I look at it, and this is something that is only recently coalescing into a full-formed thought for me, is that, you know, when people say, well, how can you tell the difference? How do you know for sure? people think about this as a, a, a litigator or an investigator kind of collecting information and evidence, whereas it's a closer analog as a doctor identifying and diagnosing symptoms. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So for example, um, if somebody comes into my office and lays out certain symptoms, like I'm having trouble getting out of bed in the morning and I have been feeling really depressed and the things that I used to do aren't as enjoyable anymore, right? These are symptoms that can correspond with like, you know, some form of depression, right? <laughs> I don't necessarily have to go and do a brain scan and get absolutely everything related to this person's history of all things ever to make a diagnostic impression. Yeah. And when it comes to identifying abuse and gaslighting, that's the way that we need to take the tack mm -hmm. of know what you look, what to look for, what tropes to look for, understand that it's never bulletproof just as, Sometimes doctors can misdiagnose, right? Yeah. Um, but that's kind of a closer analog of how to look at it because usually we have to look for smoke well after the fire has been extinguished. And yeah. does that make sense? Yes, totally. Yeah. So I have two closing questions for you before we wrap up. And okay. that is one, what can we do if we suspect we're being gaslit? And two, what do we do if we see someone in our life is being gaslit in their relationship? So one of the things that I, I can say about most people I've met in the non-monogamy community and pink communities is we, we tend to be fairly, you know, this is a broad generalization. We tend to be fairly intellectual, and, you know, <laughs> analytical and cognitive types. We like to think about stuff. We like to pontificate and, and intellectualize stuff. I definitely know that for me, my intellect can be something of a safe space. The problem is, in cases of gaslighting, um, our intellect can actively work against us because we can talk ourselves in and out of just about anything. Our bodies, however, are a little bit less easy to fool. Uh, and, and emotions are stored in our body. Sorry, this is a much longer answer to a much shorter question. So learning how to ca calibrate your embodied experience can kind of help you get an idea. So think about a time where there's something that you felt really confident in uh, that you know about and somebody on the internet was getting it wrong and you're like, no, just stop, stop, <laughs> stop talking. <laughs> 
we've all had that whatever your expertise is you're just like you're doing it wrong um and 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 conjure that moment and remember what that felt like because when we have an area of expertise and somebody is getting it wrong there's a certain feeling when we say like no no mm -hmm. just no versus have you ever had a friend or someone you care about tell you a hard truth that you didn't want to admit was true to yourself but you knew it was true that like oh that that like for me it's kind of a sinking pit feeling mm -hmm. but it may you know think about what that feels like instead where does that live in your body and then think about going back to the oh shit where are my keys i knew i left them somewhere how does that feel yeah and so when somebody is saying something with you check in with your body what sign you know what are the sensations and the emotions that your body is trying to communicate to you because they tend to know better than you do like as an example of that i was recently working with a client who was stuck in an unhealthy dynamic that on you know on some level he knew was unhealthy but was terrified to leave and he was like, yeah, but what if things change and get better? And what if I am giving up this amazing opportunity? And I was like, what is your gut telling you? Like my gut's telling me to run screaming. I was like, you know what to do. Yeah. You just really don't want to do it, which is valid because that's hard. But when we ignore that embodied knowledge, we do ourselves a disservice. So that's question number one. Mm -hmm. um, Question number two, when somebody you feel is being gaslit, the best thing you can do is reality test. Um, both ciderisms or, well, I don't know, I wasn't there, do not do, because you're feeding into the gaslight. Um, so if somebody said, and then he said this, this, and the other thing to me, or then she said this, this, and the other thing to me, I'll be like, that sounds like a whole bunch of nonsense. Like, that's ridiculous, who, no. Um, by validating, their internal experience, you're keeping their ability to gauge how things work. Mm. Um, Non-monogamy, in my experience, depending on the dynamic, can be a protective factor or it can be an exacerbating factor, depending on if you're in like an echo chamber polycule or if you have uh, partners or satellites who aren't necessarily in there who can give, you know, fresh eyes on the experience. Um, there was somebody who I met who didn't realize the severity of the gaslighting and the abuse she was experiencing until she met a partner who, when she was talking about like the rules and expectations and fights that she had had, the partner was like, that's, that's messed up. You deserve better than that. And, and that helped her heal. Mm. Um, in my own experience with gaslighting, there was a relationship I was in. It was my first poly relationship. Something happened where basically this guy had convinced me that I was being such a drain on him and his polycule that he was, you know, and when I apologized, his, his response was, um, so, if a dog has rabies, Samantha, is, the, is it the dog's fault? Ooh. And I said, oh, no, it gets better. Just wait. I said, no. He said, yeah, but, but you still have to shoot the dog, right? Oh, shit. This was over a decade ago. I was not nearly as um, resourced or educated or anything. 15 years ago? Holy crap. How long ago was 2005? So this is a while ago. Yeah. Um, and so right after that, I was a mess and there was, uh, I had some friends who came and consoled me and I was like, this is what he did. And I screwed up everything. And I was such a burden on him and his partner. And my friends were like, Sam, no, he was an asshole to you. And that was the only reason why I was able to get out of that relationship earlier than I may otherwise have done. Mm. So there's a personal example. Mm. Well, I know we could go much deeper into yes. all of this, but I want to respect your time and everyone else's. So for people who just want to stay in touch and see what kind of cool work you're doing in the world, where can they find you online? Um, I am on, uh, I, I have a Facebook page. It is Beyond Safe Words, not to be confused with Beyonce words, which everyone hears. It's Beyond with a D. 
safe words. Um, I have a blog that I do sometimes remember exists called beyondsafewords.com. Um, I also want to plug a PayPal pool that we have set up for our pod. Yes. So what people do not realize about the work we're doing is it takes a lot of time and a lot of money. So in our most recent update, we put a, uh, a crowdfunding PayPal pool together to help some of us uh, get paid for the work that we're doing, to pay for things like Ida's consulting, because they are not part of the pod, they are a consultant. Uh, there's certain pieces of work that I need to do that I can't do unpaid. So uh, please help us uh, and support us financially if there, or, you know, if there's something simple that you want to know what you can do to kind of help invest in our future, we would hope you consider investing in us. And uh, I could send you a link to the pool that, if you want to post it with this. Yes. Um, well, if you could post it with all of our podcasts, including Ida. Yes, 100%. I will list it on every single episode in the show notes for everyone listening. Cool. Um, yeah. So Great. Well, I will have links to your Facebook and your blog. And then, of course, to the PayPal, because for everyone listening, I know everyone who listens to the show, or I'll say 99% of the people who listen to the show, are really interested in alternative justice practices That's and awesome. finding new ways forward. So let's all throw a couple bucks into the pot because a couple bucks from lots of us adds up to lots of bucks. That Please do. <laughs> there are just a slew of people and not just me. I've just, I'm working with such amazing folks and they are all busting their keisters in ways, you know, pub, it, it just uh, the amount of work that we're doing is primarily invisible to the public yeah. by design, but there are a whole lot of people who are working their asses off right now who, um, should be paid for their labor. So. Yeah. Yes. Well, for everyone listening, I will be doing an embodiment exercise that helps Ooh. us to kind of learn how to tune into our bodies with the Patreon bonus to accompany That's this week. Awesome. And I know. That's so uh, cool. <laughs> I'm excited. I love doing stuff like that. That's so um, great. I love it. Yeah. I'm here for it. Good. Me too. Um, I just want to thank you for giving so much of your time to us and your wisdom oh, sure. and your knowledge. This has my been pleasure. wonderful. Likewise. I uh, hope y'all find my insight, if not helpful, at least interesting. Yes, for sure. To everybody who listened, thank you so much for being here with us. Don't forget to head to patreon.com slash SGR podcast for the bonus and to click through to the PayPal and to check out Samantha's links. Thank you so much to you, Samantha, and I will be back next week. Bye. You used to light up like a spark. Now you're blue, treading water in the dark. A huge thanks to the vocal few, the married duo behind the music featured in this week's intro and outro. Find them at vocalfew.com. Head to patreon.com slash sex gets real to support the show and get awesome weekly bonuses. As you look towards the next week, I wonder, what will you do differently that rewrites an old story, revitalizes a stuck relationship, or helps you to connect more deeply with your pleasure? Don't be ashamed